He's going for first. Mr. Sheen shines at Silverstone. It's quite the end. Look at that. Barry Sheen. You can't talk without Barry Sheen flipping the feed to Kenny Roberts. Well, I am excited. <laughs> Intensely so. Bit like Charlie Bucket in a candy shop or Jimmy Carr leaving HMRC's offices with a nice brown envelope. But why? Well, stick around because myself and my colleague who's with me, James Charman, have a treat for the ears coming up. You are going to love this one. Meanwhile, it's an episode which is centered around just one race, but several, in inverted commas, characters of the game. It's MotoGP, but from the good old days of the 500cc. So yes, I hope you enjoy what's coming up just as much as we are. How excited have you been about this, James? Very. I mean, anyone who knows me will tell will like instantly be able to say that I'm a I'm a bike mad person. Um, don't ride, but I just love watching people go just completely bananas on a on a bike. And when you've got Larry Sheen and Kenny Roberts, two of the biggest names in the history of bike racing, it's just you know it's the epitome of bike racing this race in that any corner is an overtaking opportunity like if you see to uh, any form of four-wheel motorsport you basically you know there's usually two or three corners where people might be able to overtake but bike racers don't seem to have that mentality because i'm just going to stick my bike inside you and i'm going to i'm going to pass you but no this was one of those i'm just going to duck down the inside in a safe manner you never take someone else out because it's not going to um it's not going to end well for either of you if you don't. So and you, and no, you don't, this was... and you don't hold on to someone's brake on the straight. Cough, Fanati, <clears throat> cough. So let's paint a picture then, folks. The time machine is revved up to take us all the way back to 1979, where back then Alien was battling the Muppets at the pictures. Sadly, not in person. That would have been a historical crossover, which I think I would have enjoyed. Sony have released The Walkman, and everybody's talking about what? Pop music. <laughs> No, it's the 500cc title fight. Why would it be that? Silly. Although you'll be livid that I didn't mention Pink Floyd's The Wall rather than that song. It is an absolute masterpiece. So It, it is. Leave those kids alone. But in racing, of course, Jody Schechter won the F1 title. On two wheels, though, it was all about Britain's real Mr. Sheen, a.k.a. Barry Sheen. We're going to discuss his role quite a lot in this insane British GP, which took place at Silverstone where double world champion Barry Sheen took on the USA's Kenny Roberts in an absolute cracker. So let's go. James, I know you're as excited as I am. Let's start with your first thoughts on this race. Barry Sheen flipping the Vs to Kenny Roberts in front of an absolutely heaving Silverstone. I mean, look at the crowd on those TV shots. That's the type of crowd you you only get that as... Formula One these days. Yeah. Even MotoGP does not draw anywhere near that level of crowd. It was it's just phenomenal. You've and it's it's another one of those like that we've discussed many times on various different races for across a broad discipline, a, a broad range of disciplines, that these races that we keep coming back to seem to be just everything coming together to make the perfect race and or the perfect storm. Two-stroke Grand Prix bikes. I mean, just the noise. But you, 
you can't so smell good. a video, but you can you can basically when you watch it, you can almost smell the two stroke fumes coming out of your computer screen. And to top it all off, the greatest commentator, any motorsport event is made better if Murray Walker is commentating on it. That's just a fact. Yeah, and of course, Murray was bike crazy. Bikes was Murray's main thing. If you look back at documentaries and any interview with him, it was where he started. So, well, he started off watching his so dad. Um, yeah, Graham himself was a TT yeah, winner. So, you know, Murray started um, in bikes. He, I remember he used to turn up at Thruxton BSP rounds because it was his local track. And they'd say, What are you doing here? Well, I've come here to watch some bikes. Yeah, anyone who loves any type of motor racing and anyone who's listened to this podcast in particular, they'll know, of course, Murray had an infamous line of, I'm going for first, as John Cleland sends a finger towards Steve Soper. But it happens in this. Like you've said, it's it's just insane seeing a person embroiled in a battle for the lead and then just has time to think, fuck it, I'm just going to turn around and tell him I took the lead. And then... <laughs> It's, it's a different world. It's an absolutely different world. It's just a turn of phrase, so forgive me, but what people would say is it was a different time. It really was. It was what I think people would say. It's it's just blokes racing and blokes having a good time. Working class fellas. That's another commentary great one-liner. I think it was a 2011 BSP final between Tommy Hill and John racing. Hopkins. This is blokes racing. Sorry for the terrible... Um, and just looking at the start where you've got 40 people just, just yeah, blokes holding their 500cc rocket ships running for three or four um, steps and then just jumping on them at bump starts they are terrifying and I could not imagine doing one you look at a MotoGP grid now and there's what 20, 20 24 yeah. and there you've got there's 46 in this race. About 43 of them are Suzuki's or Yamaha's. And 15 of them are British riders, which I really wanted to do a quiz on, but we'll be here forever. So we'll leave that one. Only one of them was Spanish, which, again, if you compare that to 2023, that just Spain produces um, motorcycle riders. I mean, I, I think like we make jokes that... Um, like rally driving is on the curriculum in Finland. I think motorcycle racing is on the curriculum in Spain because yeah. they produce motorbike riders about as much as Jockey Wilson produced new teeth to the tooth fairy. I know a couple of people that have um, their kids have been racing in um, fab racing. You know, like the the national mini bike yeah. championships. Uh, before they go up to say the British Talent Cup or something like that, they they're now preparing to go and do some rounds in Spain. Because they know if you if you want to go to MotoGP, you have to race in Spain. And so, yeah, it goes to show after, what, 40 years? Just how much it's changed. Because, yeah, there were, there were two Spanish riders across all categories. There are 30 in the three Grand Prix classes at the moment. Nora. Sorry. I mean, you even have to just look on to, before we get to the main race, just look at the supports. I mean, Randy Mamola incredibly famous name famous also for basically having one of the best ever motorcycle crash saves <laughs> hanging onto a bike at one stage in maybe italy but 
he was second to South Africa's Cork Wellington in the 250s. And then he also went and won the 350s, which is proper almost NASCAR stuff when you think, oh, I'm just going to enter the lot now and see how many I win. That's definitely something um, that you don't really get these days. You see it slightly on, um, if you watch road racing, um, you've got uh, Superbike, Super Sports, Super Stock, Super Twins, and a lot of the time all of those riders will race the same. Um, sometimes they'll practice on three of them in, in one evening. So that's the only place where that kind of still happens. Fingers on buzzers. Who won the 125cc race? That would be the legendary Angel Nieto. Who, he was okay. Yeah, I mean, he embodies that. Like you mentioned, Randy Mamola racing in two classes in the um, at the same time. I mean, 72, Nieto won the 50cc category and the 125cc category. He was every year doing those two, those tiny bike categories which you know, 50 cc's just feels mad that they race those as a grand prix class nowadays even 125s have gone i think a moto 3 now is a 250 so um yeah i miss the uh the proper lightweight categories i used to yeah. as a kid i used to love watching 125 races i used cuz i used thing to that, as well the thing that drew me to it was i couldn't quite comprehend how they were able to race bikes on such thin wheels they were basically bicycle tires while going 10 bikes side by side at the really bigger open circuits as well yeah just just the 13 world titles and 90 victories to nieto's name so yeah it's, it's a wonder why people say that he's probably one of the best that's ever been around a lot of people like to say he doesn't get enough credit outside like everyone knows agostini everyone knows rossi but of course not many people if if you like bike racing then obviously you know who nieto is but i reckon some car fans won't know who he is whereas they would know at least the name agostini and rossi an absolute legend of the sport another two contenders for the honor of potentially best riders especially of that time they were fully in combat in this race and in emphatically exciting fashion kenny roberts the american and britain's own Barry Sheen and Barry brought the excitement. He brought the skill. He brought the madness. I think if it was football, he would probably akin to a kind of a nineties, early nineties spec Paul Gascoigne. Yeah, what a bloke he was, wasn't he? Just well, it's great because um, at that time in the in the mid seventies, you had James Hunt. You know the the quint quintessential British playboy doesn't kind of make sense, but I think you know what I mean. And Barry was to bikes what Hunt was to to cars and the fact that you know we owned world motorsport in 76 with barry and james but no barry was brilliant i i once got to see um uh one of his old crash helmets quite up close and you can still see the uh he, he had the hole that he had drilled into the front of his helmet so that he oh, could yeah. he could smoke a cigarette right up to the absolute last minute before he had to to go um to go race his bike which Totally different time. Um, well, around about that time would have been in NASCAR when um, the um, incredibly named Dick Trickle had, uh, I remember seeing an onboard camera of, of the in the middle of a race and you just see him just quaffing on a fag as he's going round. You go, ah, there you go. This is a different era, isn't it? It's also one of those eras where it was almost 
it, it, you you didn't want to be seen to be less manly in sort of yeah, quotation marks. It. So it's it's just it's pure um, caveman sort of mm-hmm. attitudes almost like me big me me race me win. I think we mentioned it in the perhaps in the Talladega conversation. Racers, especially NASCAR drivers in the, in that era, um, would race uh, with concussions because they just didn't think you know it was put a, put a wet tea towel on your head, cool yourself down for a few minutes, and you'll be fine. And it was almost that same attitude here. I, I'm sure riders would have would have jumped on the bike when they really shouldn't have. Yeah, Barry Sheen, he was the home hero, of course, for this. He won three races that year. Yeah, he finished third in the standings behind Kenny Roberts and Virginia Ferrari. He ended with two titles, which came before this in 76 and 77. So at least his legacy is there. But it must be said the first title was more remarkable because before that, he'd recovered from a spectacular crash at Daytona on the banking in the 1975 season, which basically could have ended his career. It broke in left thigh, right arm, collarbone, two ribs. He was basically becoming, if if he'd stuck a gun in his leg, he would have been Robocop. He was that filled with screws and metal plates in his body. You say it could have ended his career. It could have done a lot, a lot worse. Yeah. I mean, it could have ended, well, the fact, you mentioned all of those injuries and um, almost, I guess you could say, lucky to walk. Um, again, let alone jump on a bike and win two world championships, especially somewhere like Daytona. That is a not anywhere you want to crash ever because that place is just a cauldron of speed. Yeah, Barry's crash is definitely one of the one of the more terrifying. I think if I remember rightly, it's it's one of those crashes as well where no one quite catches it on camera. You see the beginning of it, yeah, and, and then, then you see the aftermath, yeah. Which makes it even worse. But but yeah, he, he recovered from that and went on to become a double world champion. Which just shows, and not just a double world champion, but a absolutely dominant. Between 75 and 77, out of 19 races, in, in a run of 19 races, he won 13 of them. Incredible stuff. But now, it was Kenny Roberts who was reigning champion. So we're headed towards the end game of 79. He was leading this season as well. It was the yellow and white Yamaha versus the red Barishin Suzuki. There's some great archive footage of this on YouTube, which you will have to go watch. But it includes the build-up as well, and there's some candid footage as well of Barishin just arguing his cases for certain rules. Uh, but of course, the Silverstone circuit as well. This was where he had the knowledge. It was such a great original version of Silverstone, still flowing. Average speed of 117. It was perfect for bike racing, wasn't it? Yeah, and that Silverstone layout. I mean, I'm. It's ob- obviously nostalgia, and you know, I was. I remember watching Silverstone when you had the uh, the proper the the fast right hander at Bridge, and Maggots and Beckett's was a chicane, and you had the Veil and all of that. Yeah, it was it's what four corners. Pretty much. Um, you've got fast corners. I don't think there's a slow corner on the circuit. No, They're I don't think there was. Very very fast. Because they tried adding a chicane in there later on in life especially for touring cars yeah because the curbs are enormous and sometimes they'd stick bales of tires there so you'd just see an explosion of tires as a fortiera plows through it and it was at a time where runoff wasn't really thought of like as a as a thing or even like the idea was that's the edge of the track 
if you go off there, you're gonna you, you don't want to go there. So we'll just put something that will stop you from going into the where the where the crowd are meant to be. Which means let's just put something big and solid. It was um, the time when catch fencing actually did catch cars. You'd see people actually struggling to get out of the single seaters because they were wrapped in a fence. Elsewhere in the field, after an eleven year absence, seems bizarre that it was that long. Honda actually returned with a four-stroke NR500, Mick Grant and uh, Takazumi Katayama, the riders. It featured an engine with oval-shaped cylinders as well as a monocoque chassis. It was revolutionary stuff on paper, <laughs> uh, but did it work? As we'll find out, I think we know the answer. you got to feel sorry for Mick Grant. Yeah, Brilliant, brilliant racing, brilliant motorcycle racer. Um, but that bike was just... It's rare for Honda to drop the ball. And in their, what, 60, 70 year history with um, bike racing, they've probably dropped the ball twice. And it was then and now. Um, PR nightmare, I think, is the um, polite way of saying it. Yeah, it was a three-way title fight, really. We've mentioned Roberts, we've mentioned Sheen. And we've just about mentioned Virginio Ferrari. He was looking to spoil the party at this point. But it was a strange old year. Because with three races left, Roberts had actually injured himself in pre-season, but then came back to win round two brilliantly. But his other rivals just seemed to suffer bad luck, which helped his cause along. Because he got Dutchman Will Hartog, ended up breaking his arm in a practice session. Johnny Ciccotto badly broke his kneecap in Austria. Sheen was just suffering from rotten mechanical luck all the way through it. Uh, Roberts was a safe pair of hands, though, really. I mean, you can argue so many different championships across the history of motorsport should have gone the other way if if a mechanical hadn't happened here or there. But I don't think Sheen, and potentially, you know, uh, controversial, I don't think Sheen should have won the championship. It was Kenny's to win that year. Kenny yeah. was on fire. The Yamaha was a brilliant bike a rocket um, ship the suzuki was brilliant as well and it, um that's why 98 percent of the grid was running one of those two bikes this was sort of that changing of the guard um sort of time i think barry was still a very good rider but kenny kenny is one of the greats yeah suzuki, suzuki had of course suzuki had a good bike but it was having a bloody horrible time when it came to qualifying in this race. Pole position did go the way of Kenny Roberts, but that only told a fraction of the story because Barry Sheen could do no better than fifth place, 1.7 seconds off the pace. So at that rate, he would have been almost a minute behind at the checkered flag had that actually manifested itself. But luckily, on the Saturday night at Lord Hesketh's house, one man came to the rescue that night which seems like a great time to bring in our special guest. So I think we'll take a quick break and get yourself ready for this. It's going to be a cracker. Fifteen British riders, as we're going to mention. One of them we've got with us tonight. I'm delighted to say it. it's only Bloomin' Stavros himself, Mr. Steve Parrish. Great to have you along, my friend. What time to be Good. alive, eh? Absolutely. I'm very pleased I'm alive. Yeah, I shouldn't be, quite <laughs> frankly. I didn't think I'd get to this age. Huh. Uh, if, I, if I'd have known that, I'd have looked after myself more. 
No, that's no fun. So yeah, 1979, we're on about. Uh, very different time, I guess, for people back then. <laughs> Much more probably calmer life. Yeah, I don't know whether it's calmer or not. Um, didn't seem very calm in my world, but then I was doing lots of great things and flying around everywhere. And I often have this conversation with people that I really didn't know what was going on in the world because I was in my own little world. I was in a world of every motorbike racer, I guess, or people that were doing what I was doing, which back then was known as the Continental Circus. And I get all these um, anniversaries coming up. Oh, yeah, the the miners were on strike or there was an earthquake or there was this. I didn't have a shit what was going on. I was just jumping in my in my van and driving around Europe or sometimes getting on an aeroplane and flying to races. Mm-hmm. Uh, waking up in hospitals, wondering who I was at times, plasters on legs, collarbone plates and pins being put in, you name it. Um, but it was just the little world that we lived in at the time. But I don't know, what, what else went on in 1979? I've got absolutely no idea whatsoever. Um, all I know is the year before I was sponsored by George Harrison, who gave me a load of money to go racing with. Um, and for me in 79, I got re-signed by... Uh, Suzuki Great Britain, Texaco Heron Suzuki, alongside uh, Tom Heron and Barry Sheen. And sadly, very early in the year, May, Tom Heron um, got killed at the Northwest 200. So it put a bit yeah. of a damper on the season. Um, I ended up breaking my wrist at the first round in Venezuela. So, yeah, for me, it wasn't a brilliant year, actually. And then I got fired at the end of it. So, yeah, it was one of them years. Obviously, there's quite a lot of uh, attrition in current MotoGP with the way they're pumping out races every other weekend. But it was just a very different era to racing, wasn't it? It was almost like much riskier, I suppose you could say, racing. There was there's certainly not the level of safety you've got today. No, um, you're right. There was um, a kind of a fairly high rate of attrition, um, and tragically, back then. It often wasn't a broken wrist or a collarbone or a rotator cuff or whatever. It was a dead person. And um, the tragedy was, you've got to remember, in 1979, I'm going to guess that most of the MotoGP grids were 40 on the grid, but 50 qualifying for it. Uh, You used to have to go to the races and some 10 probably didn't make it through because they didn't get to qualify. And if you lost one or two, it didn't seem quite so bad. Nowadays, obviously, um, A, everything is filmed and and, um, watched. Back then, there was no real proper TV. We got TV in each country, really, and I think the race you're probably going to talk about was was it ITV or BBC? And in Italy, it would be Ray, and in France, it would be Channel Seven or whatever. So it was just TV kind of hit and miss. If you happen to be in a country where there wasn't much else going on, they might film it. Um, but no question about it, there was a lot of people who lost their lives in in motorcycle racing at that period and it was around the same time that the riders were all going on strike and um the urta was formed really it was a mm-hmm. kind of a, a threat of a breakaway group because everyone was fed up with the tracks that we were going to the facilities the organizers being ripped off not getting paid any money to do motor gp so it's a bit of a time of unrest i guess you'd probably say about that time yeah and of course yeah you mentioned barry sheen uh, how how popular was he because he was Amongst all the British riders, he's the one that people always like to reminisce about. But how how was he, one, as a rider, and two, just as a character? Barry was a character um, because he uh, led what I call a normal life, even though he's a global superstar, uh, particularly in the UK, but pretty much worldwide. Um, Unlike the global superstars we have now that are winning races and things, who... 
I say tragically, but maybe it doesn't matter. They haven't had what I call a proper life because they've started racing with their bums or dads when they were five years old or whatever on mini bikes. And then they go to win something and then they go off to some academy and then they get drafted into a Red Bull rookies. So they don't really have what I would say is a proper life, a life that's going to make you into a character. You know, you, you're never yeah. mixing outside of your own little homogenized group of people. Um, but yeah, Barry was um, a Cockney kid, born with talent, smoked too many cigarettes, as we all know, was a dog groomer, a lorry driver, a, did anything to make a few quid, helped his dad, Franco, build motorbike engines, went round, did, I think he did one or two seasons as a mechanic when he was about 15 or 16, um, with a guy called Lewis Young was one of them because he's a sponsor of mine. But he just travelled around doing the things, got to ride some bikes at Brands Hatch, testing them. Uh, and was faster than the bikes that uh, the, the people that were supposed to be racing them. Um, he was great fun, um, hugely talented, very, very smart. You know, he, he, he could sell the Arab sand, I guess you could say. He was very good at communications, excellent people person, um, which helped him immensely in his career because he even got to learn to speak Japanese so he could communicate more with the Japanese. He was fluent in French, Italian and Spanish pretty much, uh, had a wonderful memory, which was always good because everyone loves coming up when you hardly know them, saying, oh, hello, Bill, how are you doing? How's your sister Janice or something like that? And he could remember all that, which was hugely annoying because I couldn't even remember my own phone number. Yeah, that sounds familiar to me. So that was Barry, a very smart, clever guy that could ride a motorcycle, good looking, um, pull the birds. Uh, I used to get the second best, but they were still pretty good. Um, and um, that, that was him. He was, yeah, proper... Glow. When he walked in a room, he had a presence about him, I guess you could probably say. I suppose a lot of riders, were, were they able to get away with more, both off yeah. the track and on the track? Absolutely were. Um, there was no track limits because if you went off a track, you hit the grass or hit a tree or a house or whatever, and the track limit was staying alive or crashing because there wasn't such a thing as you were off the track because often you were, and if you're lucky, you came back on, and if you didn't, you went off in a hospital, in an ambulance. So there was none of all that nonsense. There was you. You ran a 500cc machine. Uh, couldn't be more than four cylinders and have six gears, and you could do what the hell you like. Then, apart from that, there was no restrictions on anything as far as how much fuel it carried. I don't think in those days um, weight. There was no minimum weights. Um, no, it was just uh, tires were a mixture because sometimes some used Michelin, some Dunlop, some uh, good years. Oh uh, yeah, it was much much freer. Uh, you didn't have to see a doctor if you fell off because if you couldn't push start your bike, you didn't get to race it. Um, so there was none of this, oh, are you fit to ride? Because if you weren't fit, you couldn't run along and jump on the thing and start it. Often I had concussion, then race the next day. No one cared about anything like that. Um, and it was just, just, it was very free and relaxed um, and probably more camaraderie because you all travelled together. There wasn't this, yeah. oh, if you're staying in the Hilton, then we're, we're going to stay in the holiday in or something you know it was just everyone camped out together traveled around together when there was a free weekend you ended up going to lake como or something and stayed in your caravans got the barbecues out i think probably the greatest achievement i could arguably say to anyone is meeting so many wonderful people so many people from all walks of life from you know the guy that delivers the paper to lord heskus and prince michael of kent was my team manager in the british bobsleigh olympic camp Brilliant. when i was in for that and um, Duke of Edinburgh's and Princess Anne's and Ayrton Senna's and Phil Reed, Giacomo Agostini, you know, all these what I call 
proper, right, proper people. Um, uh, George Harrison, Rod Stewart, you know, kind of Barry opened up a few doors, I guess you could say, seemed to know everyone and um, I'd be hanging in there. So, yeah, very fortunate to have led a full, pretty full life, yeah. You touched on the um, the fitness required. If you can't bump start the bike, you can't race. I mean, looking yeah. back at a bump start now, like 40 bikes with people, the, the, the flag goes and then you get like those two, three seconds before the engines fire and you just see everyone jumping on. It looks alien now. Yeah. Like, what was that like, especially if you're having trouble and someone's coming flying past you when they've managed to get the bike going before you can? I think my biggest injury, um, not life-threatening, was I smashed my ankle in about 18 bits at Hockenheim because exactly that. I was on a TZ500. It didn't fire up. Finally, it did, and then it wouldn't pick up. It was burbling away and not going anywhere, and I'm uh, sitting duck in the front row of the grid or second row of the grid, and someone hit me from the fourth row of the grid and smashed my ankle to smithereens. Um, but that was that was it. So, yeah, one of the worries was not just not doing the race very well, it was getting clobbered from someone behind because there was people that pushed from the left side, some from the right side, um, some the, as they set off the front wheel come in the air and they didn't see what they were doing. There, there's some great pictures out there, isn't there, of people, absolute pandemonium and chaos yeah. going on. Um, and that was very much part of the race. If you could just get your bike started early and that was um, something that you practiced and you had this little sequence, you'd come around on the warm-up lap and rev the shit out of it and then hit the kill button and coast up to the line and hopefully the plugs wouldn't boil up when you went to start it. Um, yeah, there's, so there's more... Uh, unlike now, I guess, yeah, with everyone, even I did in my latter years, everyone's engines running and you're pretty much guaranteed to get away and something, unless something stupid happens. So there was a lot of crashes and injuries and, and damage done on starting the bikes. Yeah. Kick in and run smoothly and, and wheelie all the way down to the start and finish line. 79, hang on, I'm just, I know, I remember a lot more. I've just, Mick Grant rode the NR Honda. Yes. Uh, Four stroke piece of shite. Um, that Honda built with oval pistons, and I crashed in that race. Uh, otherwise, I'd like to think I might have been involved in the, the race near the front. And the reason I crashed, because Mick Grant couldn't start the NR500 because it, I think it ticked over at 9,000 RPM, and they had to push it to 20 mile an hour or something to fire it up. And when it did, which was virtually a lap after everyone else had gone, he shot off as we were coming around Woodcut Corner, did a big wheelie on this thing. Not that he wanted to, it just did. And all the oil came running out and I hit the oil when I came around to start the second lap. Um, so I did have a little go about him uh, that, and he fell, we both fell off. He fell off on his own oil and I fell off on his oil. And I was not best pleased, you can imagine, because I was I'd qualified pretty good and was looking for a good race. So that was my, yeah, that was the end of my race. I watched the, the, uh, the, the race at the front unfold. From I the sideline, I saw the footage of that, and it, it literally looks like an episode of Scooby Doo. There's just just oil smoke everywhere, and then you just appear, and Barry Walker's trying to work it out as he's going. He's like, "It's the Honda." You go because they were having a <laughs> shocking return then. A bit strange because Granty was explaining now that they paid him a whole load of money, and in '78, the year before, they paid him uh, to ride a Suzuki because the bike wasn't ready, and he painted an RG. 500 in red colours, so it looked a bit Honda-ish, and I think he put a Honda sticker of decals down the tank. Um, but uh, he was of the opinion, when they asked him to to ride for them, that if Honda was going to make something and do something, they did it properly, and that's how it, it used to be. On the times of Barry Sheen, was it true that you once qualified on his behalf because he was, let's just say, suffering during a Well, 
I, I actually did, but the the story got completely um, out. It got yeah, it got right, and it all it's all down to James Whitterman. Uh, was it Carl Fogarty stuff doing some shows years ago? Um, and they used to tell. I'd get these. That's one of the reasons I started doing my theatre show was I'd see Whitam quite regularly. Go, oh, yeah, we were up in I don't know Skegness last week, and we ran out of things to say with half an hour ago, so we used all your stories up. So I didn't feel that was very appropriate, and I should be doing my own. But they somehow managed to turn that around. That Barry had got drunk the night before and was unable to ride. Well, it's not that the case. What happened was it was Mallory Park. I think it was a post TT event, one day event where there was free practice at 9am for 20 minutes and then it would be qualifying at 12 o'clock for <clears throat> 20 minutes and then the race would be at 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock. And Barry had, um, still, was still carrying injuries. This was 1977 from his broken leg at Daytona. Yeah, of course. He had screws and pins and things put in. And somewhere along the line, his knee locked up. Uh, whether a ligament had got caught behind a screw or what, I don't even know what, what it was, but all I remember is Rex White coming rushing over to me. Barry's knee's gone and he's got to go and see uh, a chiropractor or an osteopath and John Cooper knows one locally he can go to, um, which meant he was going to miss qualifying. And those days, if you hadn't qualified, you didn't get to race. And it was a championship round of the Shell Sport 500. Um, and Rex sheepishly came to me and said, look, Steve, you don't have to say yes on this, but I'm going to ask you if you could go out on Barry's bike to qualify it. But if you do that, you're going to have to have number seven on and you're going to have to look like him, which I jumped at the chance. And I did exactly that at 12 o'clock when qualifying came about. I donned the sheen leathers, helmet, boots, everything but his underpants virtually. And uh, off I went and did three laps on his bike. Um, just the three because I wanted to put some more in on mine. Um, best bit was all the girls waving their underwear at me at the hairpin, thinking it was Barry Sheen behind that dark visor, but it was me. Uh, came in and got on my bike, uh, having rode into his awning because it wasn't garages and there was awnings on the side of the trucks and shot out the back. Uh, all the journos came over, wanted to know what was wrong with Barry's bike and Martin Oldbourne said, keep away from me. He's in a foul mood because the disc valve broke or something like that. Jumped on my bike, went and did about seven or eight laps, changed the gear in, did another three or four laps only to find out when he got back, um, because it was no electronic time, and it was ladies in the control tower writing down the lap times, that I'd qualified him on the front row on his bike after three laps, and I was on row two. So I managed to oh, out-qualify yes. myself, and I'm never to this day sure whether his bike was better or it was the underwear being waved at me. And am I, am I right in thinking that he came off in a race or he'd retired or something, and you were in the lead, so he put out a pit board saying, gas it, wanker. Not only was it a race, it was the 1977 British Grand Prix. First year it was moved from the TT back to Silverstone because it was 76 with the TT and they moved to Silverstone. It was my first ever year doing Grand Prix. Didn't know any of the tracks we went to because we went to Venezuela, to Hockenheim, to Le Mans, to Nürburgring, to Finland in Matra, Spa, all the tracks. I'd never been, I'd never been abroad. Finally, we get to the, it was the final Grand Prix of the year at Silverstone. And I knew the track, loved it. Qualified on the front row with Barry. And uh, or actually, the teammate at the time was Pat Hennon, because he was part of the Suzuki team in 77. And everything went really good. Didn't for Barry, because his head gasket failed midway through the race. Uh, and he'd had problems. His bike was a slightly later model than the ones that I had. Um, and it was fast, but it was a bit more troublesome. And he retired halfway through the race. Um, and I 
got away from the other bunch, which was Will Hartog, Pat Hen and John Williams. Um, and with three laps to go, I had a second lead. Two laps to go, I had a two, two and a half second lead. Last lap, I came around with three and a half, four seconds lead. Only to see Barry Sheen with my pit ball, because you have to remember back then, it wasn't uh, numbers that you put in, it was chalk, black blackboard and chalk. And very nicely written, because he was a good handwriter, Barry, uh, was Gasset Wanker as I went to start my last lap. Um, and he must have been telepathic, because I went to turn one at Silverstone Cops. In my defence, um, and it was fact, it had started drizzling with rain, I fell off uh, as soon as I went past Pitboard. I don't know whether he put me off or I just was a knobhead. Crash. John Williams inherited the lead from Pat Hennon. Two seconds lead. He went to Beckett's the next corner. Being the first to hit the damp track, he went down and Pat Hennon went on to win the race. And to this day, no British rider has ever won the British Grand Prix uh, when, since he's been on the mainland, which is annoying. I could have been famous for that. Yeah, you mentioned Will Hartog. He's in this race that we're on about. It's everyone talks about Kenny Roberts and Barry Sheen, but Will does a good job in this one. Was was he an underrated rider? I think he was. Will he was he, he won a few Grand Prix and Suzuki's, but he was a good rider. The the, the white giant we called him because he was six foot two or three. Uh, always wore white leathers generally, um, and was good rider. Weird, weird style, though. horrible style. He used to like, like a motocross rider, he'd lay the bike down and sit up himself. It was really peculiar. Yeah, of course, the other one was Kenny Roberts. Uh, was Kenny and Barry a, a big rivalry at the time? Because they seemed very different. There was, there was more rivalry came from Motorcycle News and Motorcycle Weekly and whatever, I think, mm. that wound it up. But they both had a huge respect for one another. Um, and uh, yeah, they disliked each other because I think they would. They knew that that was probably where the biggest problem was going to come from. Kenny with Barry and Barry with Kenny. Um, but there was a great deal of respect there, and it was more tongue in cheek when he gave him the V sign coming up uh, from Abbey Corner when Murray Walker said, "And he's waving, he's waving," but he was obviously given the V sign, which Americans wouldn't even know that was, would they? Because it was a finger for them. Um, but they had a lot of respect for one another, and there wasn't a great deal of hatred. I don't think that that went on. There was there was other riders. I think that Barry disliked probably more than Kenny in some ways, and they became very good friends in the latter part of their career and worked together at Yamaha. Of course, eventually when Barry moved to Yamaha, upset someone by saying this, but I think out of the two, Kenny was probably the f most talented rider at the time. Barry had other ways of. Of being very competitive, he was um, doggedly brave in whatever he did and everything else. But I think even Kenny, Barry knew that towards the end. Kenny was a phenomenal rider. He was the um, he'd been the Mark Marquez of his time, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, that seemed to have a bit more than anyone else. And you mentioned the speeds there. It's it just shows how fast you guys were racing. That the record speed of a Premier Class race is still. Uh, from 1977, I think it was. Mm, Spa, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's what the tracks were like. Um, it was my first Grand Prix at Spa, and I couldn't believe it. It was you went down to first gear at the hairpin, and that was it. Everything else was in fifth and sixth gear, really. And there was houses either side of you. It's the first time I ever overtook Giacomo Agostini, and I was nearly starstruck and didn't dare overtake him. And I'm staring, thinking, "This is my hero." And he was looking back going, who the fuck is that? I think he didn't know who I, had. I was. It was my first year doing Grand Prix. For the, for the British Grand Prix, did it, did it 
like I say about the crowd power with Nigel Mansell, did it get the British riders going any better? Get them I think so. I think, yeah, it's probably, I don't know how, how it works, but home football teams always reckon they play better on the home home pitch. I don't know. I think there's a lot to be said for that because what you've got at the, your home round is all your friends and mates and relations yeah. turn up. Biggest frigging nightmare to try and get passes back then. They'd give you something like... I don't know, six passes or whatever. Um, and you had to sneak everyone in and everyone would be swapping tickets and hiding in boots. And um, and and uh, so you, you're under an element of, I don't know about pressure, but you were wanting to perform at your best. You knew the track. You were probably able to get your bike prepared a bit better because it was near the workshops where you're at. Um, and for me, obviously, it was the first time I'd got to a Grand Prix that year when I knew where I was going. So I think that helps a great deal. But then, arguably, sometimes you can have a complete nightmare at your home Grand Prix because you're trying too hard and end upside down, as I did. Kenny Roberts, who leads the World Championship, who won in Austria and in Italy, in Spain, in Yugoslavia, and is now seven points ahead of Virginio Ferrari, starts the race in a very uneasy frame of mind. Yeah, lovely old job. Thank you to Stavros for his time. So yeah, let's get into the actual race then, eventually. <laughs> Before the race even began, there was drama. Kenny Roberts' Yamaha blows a seal, spraying the bike with oil, as well as his gloves and his crash helmet and pretty much anything around him. <laughs> so of course, he then turns up to the grid, last of all. And as you and Steve have mentioned, back then the grids were just littered with chaos. It's, it's just a, a clump of chaos waiting to happen to the point where Will Hartog, the spoiler in all of this race, grabs an early lead and then gets a wonderful description from Murray Walker, doesn't he? What does he call him? The uh, the Dutch grass farmer, which perfect. I mean, the thing with Murray is you know that is a, a, a fact, that is just yeah. what he is, but anyone else hearing that, just they and me, the first time I heard that I was like what is he growing? You said earlier Barry Sheen had a poor qualifying and um, was fifth on the grid, but it's only row two. That's the that's the front of row two. This was back when a uh, bike grid was was four bikes wide, which now looking back just seems ridiculous. I remember for years after they changed the rules to say only three bikes because it started MotoGP was three, but the the other categories were still four, um, and now it's three across the board. And even in superbikes and everything, it's now three. But it's not even yeah, staggered. It's it's we see a normal, nice staggered grid. It's just basically one line and then another line. So basically you qualify fourth and you've got the inside line. <laughs> it's just have you ever seen some of the old like nineteen sixties stuff where the grids they were literally boxes painted on the grids? Yeah. So there was no stagger, it was just this is your box, start here, run. Yeah. Um we mentioned it with, with Steve, but Barry pulls an absolutely monumental wheelie off the line. I like, oh, genuinely thought good. it was going to go over the back, which I think had it not been for that, he would have got the lead off the off the line. The, the anti-wheelie device and the whole shot device clearly weren't working that day. And um, yeah, Will Hartog jumps into the lead. And of course, he'd won five races in his career. He's, we say he's the underdog in this. Well, he was still a handy rider. At this stage, you're trying to get a break. At a place like this with only fast corners, you're just trying to get a break. And it turns out there's three riders that do make an escape eventually, which is Hartog leading, 
from Kenny Roberts and then Barry Sheen, who's worked his way through forgetting all of the problems of qualifying, where I think a little bit of respite with the likes of Stavros in the bar at Lord Hesketh's house before that has suddenly worked its magic, it seems. A tremendous ding-dong battle between three of the top riders today, Hartog, Sheen and Roberts. So we've got a race on here between three people and you could hear the crowd starting to get excited. The crowd power I think also Barry. would have been helping. That would have been helping. Like, um, you know, it's it's that weird thing, like like Steve mentioned, the home field advantage of a football team. You don't know what it is, but something when when you've got that crowd roaring you on, it just gives you that extra boost. Yeah, it, it always it always amazes me when you hear the crowd cheering at a race like like um Grand Prix, whether it's two wheels, four wheels, or or even like a NASCAR race or a or any very loud motorsport event when you can hear the crowd cheering over the um over the, the sound of the of the engines. But it's when the competitors say they can hear it as well. Yeah. Like, like Nigel um, Mansell. Yeah. Well, I think even very recently Glenn Irwin said he could hear the crowd at the BSB finale um recently. Just just shows to show how into it those fans can get. And uh, this was definitely one of those, you know, we were so close to getting a British winner of the mm-hmm. British Grand Prix. And they, I think everyone sensed that it was doable. Barry was, he was on it on that day. It was because the problem was goal was going to be Kenny Roberts was at the time really at a good peak in his career. And he was trying to make the break early on. He told Motorsport Magazine, he said, I could do three laps flat out but if I couldn't break away, then it was never going to happen. And apparently he had a very leery opening lap as there was still oil pissed all over the bike, including on the front tyre. So, of course, it was a bit terrifying, I'd imagine, at that stage. But it just and could not get away. His gloves and stuff were meant he was um, slipping off the throttle. He was, yes. Which is so... uh, which is alarming, especially when you're the, fir- the, the last rider to turn up at the grid. And also at a circuit where... It is basically flat out the entire way. You do not want to have, like come off the throttle. You come off the throttle. That's the next half a lap out the window. There is there is a point where he he starts to get a break. That Yamaha should have just bolted. It should have. Um, maybe it was the the engine issue. I mean, two stroke engine blowing up. Who's ever heard of something like that happening? I mean, oh, um, beggar's belief. Yeah. So. Perhaps the perhaps it wasn't quite running as well as he'd wanted. I don't know, but it made for an epic race, though. I mean, it was just two and four, punch counter punch, everything happened at it to the point where eventually the big moment comes as Roberts and she get themselves ahead of Will, and in the chopping and changing, Barry finally gets the lead at turn one to roars from the crowd. I mean, that's good enough. Well, then we get the image, the iconic image of Barry turning round, having a little check, then just takes his hand off the bar and gives the flying V over his shoulder. It's quite the end. Look at that. Barry Sheen, with absolute effrontery, not only looks over his shoulder, but takes his left clutch hand off the handlebar and waves to Kenny Roberts. It's just great, isn't it? It's it's even funnier, as we say it, how he then just loses the lead by essentially pissing about. 
was that for the crowd or was that just Barry being Barry? It's he, just him being Barry, isn't it? Yeah, and I like what Steve said. Like um, Kenny probably didn't know what he was doing because well, that's Ken- not really a. Well, Kenny actually really added a... in this. He said, "When Barry gave me the bird, of course it wasn't the bird. But that's just as he says the Americans didn't know what that was." He said, "When he gave me the bird, it made me chuckle because people hadn't seen me waving at him, saying, Fuck, let's go, you arsehole, or the others are going to catch us.'" Oh, right. So it was a response. So again, it was like we said earlier. It was the, um, the tap on the back. When does that ever work? And all that does is just get the other person to go just fuck off. It's equivalent to just constantly flashing headlights at someone when you just haven't made the move. Just just send a lunge or start cutting backwards and forwards. But it's it's the easy way of just like Dale Earnhardt waving at Kenny Wallace. <laughs> go back and listen to it. But it went all the way to the flag. With a nail-biting finish, it was always going to be between these two, though, especially with Barry needing the win and wanting it at home. But then there's a moment where they all nearly trip over a back marker. This happens a few times where with so many bikes and so many different kinds of performance levels, etc., they come across traffic, which is not exactly forgiving. Not in the world of blue flag waving now. So, of course, it's Ron Haslam who turns to be on the apex of cops and there's almost a three-pike pile-up behind him. This is the disadvantage of a grid that size. Um, Ron Haslam, by the way, is a brilliant top, racer. Top rider, so, yes. Um, As is Leon. But, um, but this is one of those, when you look back, and maybe we do look back with rose-tinted spectacles because, oh, look how big the grids were. But it was not a quality grid. When I say I call it, everyone there knew how to race a motorbike. They 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 were very good motorcycle racers to be able to control a bike of that speed and power. But it you did not have the same quality of grid that you've got across the board in MotoGP now. There is not a single mad racer on the MotoGP grid. Everyone that's on that grid deserves to be there. Whereas you could argue there were probably a few riders on the on and um in Grand Prix grids in in the seventies that perhaps they're there because they've just bought a bike, they've got a van, they've got someone that knows how to use a spanner. Um working, working class heroes, James. Yeah, absolutely. Much like um, ourselves. And, but again, saying that, just looking at some of these names that are further down the order that, that we haven't perhaps mentioned yet. We've mentioned Mick Grant, Dave Potter these obviously looking from the back and people that failed to finish. None of these people were bad riders. Ron Haslam, Stan Woods, um, Alex George, Randy Mamola, Johnny Chicotto, uh, Graziano Rossi. Um, not sure if his son was perhaps slightly better. He was, he was, very, he was very good in her status quo, I heard. Yeah. yeah um, Eddie Grant was also in here before he was uh, rocking down to the Electric Avenue. Um but yeah, there was lots of good riders on that grid, but also all know how to race a motorbike. But these days, probably wouldn't have made it to Grand Prix. Yeah, and of course, and amongst those other names as well, like if you look down, there's another name there that we'll, we'll have heard of, especially if you've listened to the early podcast, uh, George Fogarty. Yes, the father of King Carl Fogarty. He plays his role in this. And it's just as it's getting feisty at the top end of the race. Sheen is all over the rear of Robert. By this point, it is just 
who is going to nick it in some form of slipstream, some kind of lunge, the chess game's coming in. And then suddenly you get to woodcut through the penultimate lap. And then in the middle of the road, George Fogarty just getting on with his own race in amongst a few other backmarkers as well. Uh, Barry Sheen thinks, I'm going to have to follow Kenny through here, takes the outside line and is balked right on the edge of the circuit. It's just cost him that extra kind of 20 metres or so. Just did that. Ultimately, we're not trying to cause blame. We're not trying to get an argument out of this. Did that kind of ruin it for Barry? I know he was a bit pissed off afterwards from what we see of interviews, but that was just at the time. I I don't think so. I don't think Barry was close enough on the... Realistically, I don't think he was close enough on the last lap. Um, the, the layout then, I think it still is, because um, they still use that um, finish line mm-hmm. for MotoGP. It's a very, very close finish line to the edge of the corner. Unlike where, if had it been Brands Hatch, you've got the long run down to the finish line. Um, well, in relative terms, I don't it's always, think it's always Barry... been as if finishes. So, an extra fifty meters down the road is where you'd expect a flag would come out. So we've seen it in BSB races as well. So many times where someone's had to just go for it around the outside. Yeah. I think this is I my only chance. Really... I'm just going to send it. Lex Rins recently, um, the brilliantly close MotoGP finish, um, the the brilliantly close MotoGP finish. But yeah, if you look at this race, Barry started. I don't think he faded, and definitely the back markers started to play a bit of a better role. But Kenny definitely had a much better hold on the race in the last two laps. And yes, we do know it's it's always difficult to look back at a race like this. And try and imagine what it was like watching for the first time. Because we never would have watched this race without knowing the result. Because we're too young to have been able to watch it without knowing the result. The start of those last two laps, you do look there and you go, no, Barry is too far back now. There's too much traffic. He's. It just looked like Kenny had it at that point. The chicken flag is out. Kenny Roberts and Barry Sheen is gaining, gaining, gaining. And there is less than a machine's length in it with a fantastic race with Will Hartog finishing in third place. The end result, Roberts won by one blooming metre. It was 0.03 seconds, I think it says here, based on uh, results pages. Kenny Roberts won, Pippi Barry to the win. Barry said he was already doing title calculations in his head on the ride round. So he's already thinking of the future of anything, which obviously ended up going the way of Kenny. But it was so, so close. And as Steve's already said, we were struggling for British winners back then. Yeah, we've still not had a British winner of the British Grand Prix. Um, It's crazy to think. We've we've had a fair share of of decent riders, that's for for sure. But um, although, trying to think, since Barry... We had to wait until Danny Kent to have a world champion. So he won Moto3 in 2015, and that is the only time a British man has won the British Grand Prix. We didn't even even win either of the sidecar races. (laughs) Not even Jock Taylor or Dick Greasley, I think it was. Not even they came close. It was a Swiss pair in that one, that. But we've never really produced a MotoGP challenging rider since since Barry really um 
James Tyson, brilliant world superbike rider. You know, we mentioned it earlier with the number of Spanish riders on the grid, and it's always seems like Britain produces since then, so through the eighties, nineties, two thousands onwards. Britain produces brilliant superbike races, like absolutely brilliant. We there was a time where we absolutely dominated the World Superbike Championship because you had not only Johnny Ray, but you had Laverty, Sykes, Redding, and they're all right up at the top lows. And even but before we that, never we've had James to Tolsland, of course, absolutely tearing course. it to shreds as well before he became a rock star. And the band is very, very good, by the way. Oh, yes, um, they are. The natural setup is to gear people up towards superbikes because that's just what is big in Britain. Whereas you look at somewhere like Spain, they're racing Moto3 bikes when they're 15. Which is, again, why a lot of British riders who want to get to Grand Prix are moving over to Spain to do some of their some of their stuff and it's why it's so great Michael Laverty has got this um, vision track team where we've got Scott Ogden and Josh Watley in Moto3 who are getting better and so hopefully this is going to be one of those it's one of those projects I think where with with the British talent cut the road to MotoGP um, vision track what everything Laverty's doing is going to be one of those projects where hopefully in maybe five ten years time we'll finally have Brits that are able to fight at the front of the MotoGP race again. Yeah, I hope so, because a lot of it has just been based around certain teams and, of course, manufacturers as well, and it just becomes a constant, you know, almost like a bubble that you're all in. And then, of course, we struggle to break into that while we're too busy having our own races at Brands Hatch, and then, of course, going into Superbikes, yeah. where it's racing in a different environment again. And then, of course, it's hard to find an, an open ride for the next year. I mean, it's it's becoming a lot more like um, Formula One is these days, where if you're not on that ladder properly, then you're not going to... It's like Colton Herter, for example, is a phenomenal driver in India. He should be in Formula One. He is perhaps the best driver in the world at the moment that isn't in Formula One, I would argue, or at least single-seated. Uh, yeah, there's a, there is a little group of those kind of, uh, those kind of drivers here, I think, just... Let's have a go. Let's have a shot, like with Oscar yeah. Piastri. And then you see people just being brought back into a Haas car from five years ago, just recycling the same four drivers round and round and round. And then someone else in a Toro Rosso, you just think, oh, sorry, Altari, Minardi. But you get the same in bikes as well. Like, for example, Top Rack, Razgatliotlu. Brilliant rider. One of and brilliant personality. But an awful, the... an awful answer in a spelling contest. Brilliant, not just personality off the bike, but personality on the bike. He is so exciting to watch. And there was talk of him, there was talk of him going over to MotoGP, but he didn't get on with the bike. So instead, he's gone over and changed superbike teams. Just goes to show you can you can go from MotoGP to superbikes without issue, like Bautista, Biaggi. It's very rare that someone who's gone up through the superbike ranks can successfully transfer across to Grand Prix. I think one of the few that's done it well was um, Colin Edwards. Because back then, um, back on the era that we're supposed to be talking about, um, it was so much easier to get your hands on a Grand Prix bike. Like People were racing Grand Prix bikes at club club races, basically. Yeah, you, yeah. Could, you could buy one and rock up at Mallory Park with one if you really wanted. Whereas, if you really wanted to scare yourself to death. <laughs> Whereas these days, there is no way you're getting your hands on a Desmond Adichie. 
just it's just not going to happen. It's, no, it's never um, going to happen. It goes back to that thing we started at the beginning, which is such a cliche, but it was just a different time, and um, yeah, it was just easier for Britons to to get to that top level. Unfortunately, though, we didn't actually end up winning the title either. <laughs> Kelly Roberts did go on to win another crown. Barry Sheen was beaten to second place in the end by Ferrari. But he's constantly etched into our minds as just this, this character, this incredible rider. But tragically, of course, 2003, he lost his battle with the disgusting C-word. I mean, we'd known him as well later in his life for... Uh, his exciting commentary and his broadcasting efforts in Via Supercars. But he also tried other things as well in his time between bikes. Do you remember him briefly racing in British touring cars as well? I remember him crashing at Thruxton, yes. It's (laughs) not quite as impressive as as our guest's um, second motorsport career. Steve Parrish went on to become one of the most successful truck racers of all time. Yeah, I still have, uh, I think it's Super Trucks 2 somewhere. Uh, gathering dust the playstation 2 i do still have that did you know barry going back to barry quickly um barry sheen um through his commentary um actually renamed one of the corners at the philip island circuit so um siberia which is out on the um right out on the coast Mm -hmm. he coined it siberia because it's so cold and windy there and it's still it's stuck and everyone calls it siberia now you do and Barry was winning races right up until uh, the very end. Um, his last ever race that he competed in um, was the 2002 Lennox Cup at the Goodwood Revival. Um, he wasn't going to race in it because he wasn't obviously in the best of health, but he decided at the last minute he wanted to, uh, he, he couldn't miss it. And Fred Wormsley, who um, is a brilliant pre- uh, preparer of, uh, that sort of era, sort of 60s Grand Prix bikes for the historic. Um, he put one together at the last minute. Barry threw his, I think it was actually meant to be for, because he was also focusing on building a bike for Gardner. And um, Barry threw his leg over it when he got there and did what Barry does. Yeah, won his last race and obviously, sadly, lost his life early the next year. So by 2003, the race had been renamed the Barry Sheen Memorial Trophy, which it's still is called to this day. Rightly bloody so. God bless you, Baz. It's quite the end. Look at that. So there we have it. A time capsule of motorcycle racing joy. Thanks to James and, of course, to Steve Parrish for their wondrous insights. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Another treat coming up soon as we're heading stateside for some IndyCar action. Then we're going back to the world of rallying with another fascinating special guest on the way. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Please do give us a five-star review and tell everyone on socials how much you enjoyed this. We'll try and pump out some more podcast content in the dreary, horrific winter season to keep you occupied. So until then, see you later. Bye.